Welcome back to Inspiring Neighbors Podcast, where we showcase seemingly ordinary people with extraordinary stories. Today we had a firecracker of a of a guest on. Hey, Angela. Ah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. It was Ryan Bicknell. He we discovered his zest for life and just experiencing life to the fullest. He mm-hmm. is an amazing storyteller. He told us so many stories of his childhood, even before his childhood, like his mm-hmm. family generations before he existed. So it was amazing to see and just the journey that he's been on to come from where he where he was born and the lifestyle he had there to where he is now and and even just the corporate success he's had and and the success just as a personality in -hmm. dealing with everyday people was inspiring it was amazing to interview him absolutely no it was really cool to meet ryan i really found his like family life the beginnings of how they ended up in africa and how he grew up there and what that looked like quite fascinating and uh, obviously they have built up quite a glamorous life for themselves as a, as a family and that goes on into his life today uh, and yet i found the way that he talks about even famous people that we might uh consider live in a different world uh he talks about them as like just everyday people like the stories that he tells about them are so uh yeah just just regular people type of type of thing and uh so that was really interesting and you can see how that like his ability to connect with people is is just doesn't matter where they come from or where they are in life even though um even as he has access to all kinds of people he he just connects and and I found that really interesting and I loved hearing all of his stories. It was really cool to see how close he is to some people who we <laughs> would names. assume yeah, yeah big names like we talk about name dropping he was he was able to drop <laughs> a few. And was... But but you know like that's not even the one I was thinking it's like he name dropped people that you uh you see on the news as as easily as he name dropped people that you would not there's no way we would know them but he's just is naming everybody because they're all people to him I, I thought that was very cool yeah i loved it i enjoyed hearing about him and his life because it, it was new to both of us he's <laughs> relatively new to both of us so so thank you ryan for joining us please enjoy ryan bicknell let's talk to our neighbors because everyone can inspire First of all, welcome, Ryan. Thank you for joining us. We are happy to have you. I'm glad you said yes. Well, you haven't had me yet, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm going to save that. That's going to be the first line that comes out after the jingle. (laughs) Ryan, I met through Darcy and I loved Ryan right away because he had this like, you know, when people, you can tell they have just a zest for like squeezing all the juice out of life. Mm-hmm. I could feel that from Ryan right away. And it came to a head at dinner when I ordered my creme brulee mm-hmm. because he immediately went into like lecture mode on creme brulee 101 <laughs> and was able to tell me like, the crust should be this dark and this burnt and this thin and you should be able to break it with this much force (laughs) of your spoon and if it breaks a little bit earlier then it's not the greatest creme brulee so then i was doing all these tests to see to test the chef if he made me a good one turns out he didn't and we ended up telling the waitress (laughs) 
<laughs> that it didn't pass Ryan's test. And she's like, yeah, I know. I don't know what he did on this. <laughs> Almost like she knew as she was giving it to me. Aww. She didn't expect Ryan to be a creme brulee expert. Yeah, that was cute. That was a lovely dinner. Very it nice. Was. Very it nice was dinner. awesome. And then since that day, I get these random texts from Ryan saying things like just crazy stories about his life. <laughs> One was like, hey, here's this professional soccer player. He, here's a picture of him getting kicked in the head by Cristiano Ronaldo. And here's a speaker that he made for me to put in my apartment <laughs> in Whistler. What? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's Jay. Talk about an amazing, though. that's an amazing human being. Jay Demerit and his uh, former ex-wife, they have a baby, a kid together, Oaks, super nice kid. And um, they're both just lovely people. And they're like, um, I met them through my friends and um, Ashley um, McIver, she won the women's gold medal for ski cross in the 2020, uh, 2010 Winter Olympics, um, and it was just so cool because, like, it was so cool to be like watching it uh, and seeing the person who you know competing and then winning, and then like, yeah, it was just so cool, so cool. That would be bonkers. So, every was there like a big crowd of your family watching? Was like everybody together uh, no, watching? No, them? it was. It was not. It was a smaller group um, because we've been going back and forth from Whistler to kind of Vancouver and. Uh, it was super cool. Actually, we were ski, we were skiing then, and because of the crazy security and everything, um, they uh, said that you know you you people just can't come up from Vancouver and ski for the day because there's they've blocked off all the parking, and so it was like there was this huge big like um, you know everybody knew right. There was a big public service announcement, and and luckily my family has a place at Whistler, so you know we were we were fine. Um, we were actually snowboarding because back then I, I was snowboarder we like the, it was like the first time ever in our whole lives that like Whistler was like so quiet it was so surreal and you're like how could this be and we get out like we have our, our cards our passes and we go on the chairlift chairlift super quiet and like the slopes are super quiet and we're like oh my god like it's so weird, crazy and then we just like started snowboarding down and like same thing like there was like only a few people on the slope and um, all of a sudden we heard this and it was like this like surreal like James Bond <laughs> moment because it sounded like a James Bond movie because it was like the only time I'd ever heard it like that was watching a James Bond movie it was like oh my god and then like all of a sudden this like surveillance military helicopter came overhead and like was like doing its rounds, security rounds. And it was just like, we were like expecting like people to like repel out of the helicopter and tell us like confiscate our snowboards because we were in a bad spot. You know, like yeah. we were like, I was like, oh my God, how am I going to talk my way out of this one? Like, <laughs> like we we are supposed we are allowed to be here like we're not out of bounds like anyway the helicopter like went off and but it was just like we couldn't see it yet and it was just making that noise right and then it just emerged like over the crest of the hill as we were like doing our like snowboard loops you know anyway, that's a great that's helicopter noise yeah <laughs> i it could actually, see it i, I also I could... felt like somebody was gonna rappel down <laughs> <laughs> I want to go way back in history 
with you briefly. You, your family is from where? Like, where uh, was well, your, I'm, let me rephrase, your mom and dad, where were they born? Yeah, so my dad is British and Scottish, so that's kind of our British and Scottish family. But my dad and his one and only sibling, his older sister, they were the first of the whole family on my dad on their side to be born in East Africa. So they were born in Nairobi, in Kenya, and then... Uh, my aunt had seven kids. They were all born in Africa. And then my dad had six kids, two different wives, three with his first wife, three with my mom, his second wife. And all six of us were also born in East Africa. F- the five of our six were in Nairobi, in Kenya. And then I was the only one that was born in uh, Uganda, in Kampala. And, you're, and, you're and my mom's mom. Irish. My mom's from Dublin. My mom's born in Dublin. Okay. So they fought all the time, that whole British-Irish <clears throat> thing. And your your dad's parents immigrated to Kenya or Uganda? Uh, sort of, yeah. They were, they were part of that, like, um, kind of British sort of group. There was a bunch of British um, people who went to Afri- East Africa because it was, like, warm and they could escape the cold, nasty, European, like, British... Um, UK winters and um, so yeah so my great grandmother Catherine Kate Elliott she was the one who started um, uh, Elliott's Bakery and yeah so she was kind of like the pioneer like super feisty and I was speaking to my cousin actually so it's interesting because my aunt so my dad died um, 17 years ago And my aunt, his sister, just died in November, and she was 96. So she was one year older than him. Um, And so it's been like everyone's been – and her funeral's this coming Friday, um, January 13th. So we have a whole bunch of family who are flying into town from um, the UK, and, like, we have Vancouver family. And so several of my cousins are speaking. And then my mom just called me the other day, and she's like, well, I'm speaking, and so you're speaking. I'm like – Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So Elliot's Bakery, can you tell me about that? Were your parents involved with Elliot's Bakery as well? Like, did it just pass on down the... Uh, down not the so much because... So, like, my great-grandmother, Kate Elliot, was sort of the pioneer. So she started because she was this, like, British, um, Scottish... Um, she's re- actually really more from Scotland, Um but she's like proper lady and she was in East Africa and um, this would have been in like the early twenties and she was just used to having like proper scones and um, sponge cake and like afternoon tea, which they didn't, it's not a thing there. Yeah. And so she was like, well, this is ridiculous. Like there's all butter, flour, sugar, (laughs) like all the ingredients are here. I'll just teach my staff how to make this them how I like right with my recipes and she was kind of a little sort of socialite person and so she would her friends came over and they were just like oh my god like these scones are like taste like home like what 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 and like so there she was like oh well you know I just had my staff taught my staff how to make them how I like and so then she got encouragement to open up the bakery and so then it turned into this like massive like super brand that like was like all through all of the whole East Africa. And then she originally, my cousin says she made her fortune like outfitting the um, uh, soldiers with supplies, but then she, you know, fitted like the Royal family 
um, and all the safari goers and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, she was just kind of like a going concern. Wow. So she, I'm going to call it her passion was garments. Is that correct? And she, I don't really know. Like I, I, my, my cousin got so excited that he wants to um, write a whole book about just her. Like, and like so he could. was like, two days ago, he called me, he, he lives in Vancouver and he was like, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and he's a, a financial advisor, like one of the top in the country. And so he's busy, but he's kind of wanting to work much less. So mm-hmm. um, he really wants, and then he texted me after he was like, I'm serious about the book because he wants me to help. So, and then my other cousin's um, daughter is a big researcher. So she's spent a lot of time over the last, like all through COVID, she really dug into like our family history and she's done like a ton of uh, ancestry stuff and like followed like the family trees and like, um, so yeah, she's, she's pumped too. So the three of us are potentially all going to do a book. And then I was joking. I was like, well, let's make a movie. And he was like, okay. I I would watch it. Yeah. Um, Somewhere between out of Africa, magic, and like the scary last king of Scotland, like somewhere in between. Yeah. (laughs) That would be cool. So then what did your parents do? Yeah. So um, my dad, so my mom originally came out through like from Ireland, right? Like from like a very, very like Catholic family. And this is actually cute. Um, She met my dad who was divorced, older, had three older children. And, you know, they, they clicked. So because the high commissioner for refugees for the UN was my dad's best friend and my mom was working for him as the new sort of like office admin person. And so they threw this big party in Kampala, Uganda, as a sort of like a welcome for my mom and a going away um, for the other person. And that's where my mom and dad met. And so at that point in time, my dad's first wife had um, basically, she got over she she wasn't into the whole magic of east africa so she okay. went back to the uk and that's kind of when the start of their relationship kind of collapsed mm-hmm. and um so anyway that's kind of how my parents met um so my mom worked for the un and uh she was like all it was all new to her right like she was like a Irish girl from Dublin, you know, like, so anyway, she, and then of course, like then Idi Amin was in power. Like, so, um, you'll, now that you've seen the movie, you'll be able to like resonate with more with this probably. Um, so her parents are like furious with her, right? Like almost like not communicating with her, like that she's met this older man, not Catholic, three kids, divorced, like sacrilegious in my mom's parents' eyes. Yeah. And so she charms them, agree and pays for their flights, the three of them, my two grandparents and my mom's brother to sort of chaperone them, right? So they're this would have been like 1978, 79. They're they're driving to the airport from Dublin to fly to meet this like 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 older man so they're listening to the bbc and they hear on the bbc that Idi Amin has declared if he see if um more than three 
uh, white people, British people, because he was pissed off with the British at then. Um, so he said, if he if they see more than three white people together, he'll have them shot. Oh and gosh. so they were like, oh, my God, like, what? Like, what? <laughs> so they, like, turn around and they go back to, you know, because this is, like, before cell phones and fax machines and email yeah. and stuff, right? So they go back home and they call my mom with just enough time to still rush back to the airport if my mom is really convincing. And they were just like, is it true? Is it true? Like, can it be true? Like, um, if it is true, we're not coming. And my mom said, well, you know, it's sort of kind of true, but, you know, we're sort of, you know, like they had diplomatic uh, plates on their cars. They had armed bodyguards. We had a fortified house. Yeah. And my dad was valuable to Idi Amin. So like, there's no way that we would be, um, our family would be in that situation. But she, she, my mom tried and tried and tried. And she just, they were just like, oh no, oh no. They're like, abort, abort, abort. Like, we're like, nope, nope, nope. So they never came, um, which was really too bad. So that was like kind of their lives. And uh, my dad was um, oil and gas um, person. So very senior person. And uh, because my dad was born in East Africa, he spoke fluent Swahili and he was a very senior, powerful, like oil and gas person uh, with Esso. And because um, Uganda is landlocked, um, the whole world was declaring trade embargoes against Uganda and Idi Amin to protest his behavior. Um, but my dad was very valuable to him. So my dad would just be, did I send you that picture, the black and white picture of my dad shaking Idi Amin's hand? Yeah. You did. So my dad yeah. would just regularly be summoned to meetings with him and his staff. And he would just I have to tell his assistant to like juggle his schedule, shift stuff around, like, you know, cause he couldn't say no to the president. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, and my dad, of course, never condoned his behavior, but, and my dad always said he was very, he was educated at Sandhurst and he was very charismatic and engaging, you know, in those meetings, like in one-on-one, right? I'm just imagining like the, the relationship between somebody who's so closely connected to Idi Amin, a person who's kind of publicly hated for crimes against humanity, basically. Yeah being in love with a UN, a worker for the UN. Totally. Such a dynamic. Yeah. The relationship there must've been. So I always say that I did my part for the humanity and I peed on Edie. I mean, and everyone's (laughs) like, Oh God, like Ryan, please. He he, like the Ryan's lost it. He has really officially lost it. And I'm like, no, no. And then I tell the story and they're like, oh, 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 that's good. Oh, that's juicy, juicy. So um, it would have been same sort of time, right? Like I was probably one years old or one and a half. And it was at some, um, you know, fancy hotel and uh, it would have been hot, right? And so my mom went down to the pool to, um, you know, cool off, right? And she, so it was just her and her, me, her little baby in her arms in the pool. 
And all of a sudden there was like, am I, there was like the meetings were going on in one of the conference rooms, right? And so all of a sudden the staff are running around the pool deck, fluffing up the pillows and like, you know, like tidying it up, right? And um, they were kind of a bit, a bit sort of panicked, right? And uh, then all of a sudden the president arrives with his robe and he's coming down for his cool down swim. And so his, he's got his whole entourage with him and they're asking him to sign stuff and do stuff. And, you know, cause he's just on his break from their, whatever meetings were inside. So my dad's up there too. My dad probably went upstairs to the room to have a nap. And so anyway, this is all happening, right? So, um, and my mom's Swahili wasn't very good. So there she is this like, you know, very white woman with her very white baby in the pool and president Amin is coming into the pool to swim and she just says, you know, jumbo, hobariaku, you know, and they smile and it's like, oh yeah, great, great. But it's just like common etiquette that like when any president gets in the pool, you just get out of the pool, right? It's their, it's their swim, right? Anyway, that's why I'm like, I am convinced that at some point while I, while I was in that pool as the one, <laughs> one and a half year old, I peed in that pool and everyone's like, oh, 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 okay, okay, okay. <laughs> gotcha. Thank you for your work, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that brings me comfort. <laughs> what do you remember from that time, from growing up in Uganda? I remember just like magical safari times. Like those were really like um, special. We also, funnily enough, um, when I was chatting with Trevor, he mentioned Mombasa and Malindi, where his family have spent time and were from. And uh, we had a, um, a summer place there on the water. And I remember it was, it was, it had a thatched roof. Um, it was white and it had a steep driveway and it was right on the beach and the beach was like white sand and it, you know, the, it was on the, you know, the nice ocean side. Right. And um, there were these uh, large um, burgundy crabs, like huge. And like, I remember as a kid, they were like, you know, the way everything, lots of things like that are even bigger than they really are in real life. And the, the crabs would often come up because it was like this sandy path through these, the grasses to where the pool was. The pool was quite close to the beach. And often the crabs would get in the pool and die from the chlorine because they were confused. So the pool guy had to like scoop them out. And then one day my uncle wanted to create, have a nice big meal. So he asked the staff to grab a whole bunch of the live crabs and he had them in buckets in the kitchen. And I remember someone knocked over a bucket and I was like, um, you know, probably like six years old. Um, and I was like right near the edge and I must've been going through the kitchen. I was probably in bare feet. And I remember like all the shouting and commotion going on in the kitchen. It was like, call the crabs, the crabs. And like, pick them up, pick them up. And like, my uncle just like picked me up. And, like I was like looking down and seeing all these like crabs crawling on our kitchen floor, like, you know, but I don't know. There's something special about that. And I also remember, uh, you know, as a small kid, you get up super early and my dad and his sister would also get up super early and they would have the staff bring up their tea to this like kind of like upper veranda. And it was usually just the two of them. And I remember a few times I was up there with them and it was just like this special time of like, you know, early morning, the rest of the house wasn't woke up yet. And just like this kind of, I don't know, really nice special time with uh, the, just the two, just the three of us, me with the two of them. Wow. Very cool. Those are cool memories. How old were you when you left there? Uh, I was almost seven. Okay. 
Yeah. So re- remembering stuff, but like, not, I mean, we, then we came to Canada. So, you know, this is really where we've grown up. Like Canada mm-hmm. really is our home, you know, like yeah. it, it feels so, you know, cause I know lots of people move to Canada when they're like teenagers and it's a lot harder to adjust. It was probably more hard for me because my two brothers are younger than me. So it was easier for them, but I wasn't, it was certainly, it wasn't hard for me. Yeah, you'll love this one time. So my mom would bring us back to Ireland twice a year to see all the Irish family. And um, my grandma was the nicest, nicest lady. And she was sweeping leaves on her front porch or or her front doorstop. And uh, I was like precocious, like a five-year-old. And I go running up to her and I was like, grandma, grandma, like what, what? what are you doing? Like, I was like, and she's like, what, what? Like, I'm just sweeping the leaves. Like, I was like, I know, but that's not your job. And she was like, well, well, whose job is it? And I was like, well, it's Peter's job. And then she was like, she was, she must've thought like, I was like some, like from Mars, you know what I mean? Like, and then she was like, well, who's Peter? And I was like, well, he's the, he's the guy that does outside work. Like, and she goes, well, what else does he do? And I went through like a whole list of, and then she goes, well, wow, this is, this is really fascinating. She goes, well, who, who else do you have? And I like listed off all the people. Right. Yeah. And she was just like, must've like rolled her eyes to be like, sweet Jesus, these people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only asking this because you asked uh, you gave us like a homework assignment to watch The Last King of Scotland. So I did oh, that. Good. Now, yeah, it's, yeah. now it's fresh in my mind. Love and it. in the movie, there's a part where um, the doctor, the Scott doctor, he wants to get out. He wants to leave. Yeah. And he was also very valuable to Idi Amin. Yeah. Was there ever a point that you know of in your dad or your mom's life where they said, this is not safe for us. I want our family to be out of here. Yeah. And and it started, I would say that my mom was probably the more like driving force behind us leaving. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm like, you know, my dad was like, because my dad was born there, it was in his blood. Like, I, I feel like it's in our blood too, you know, like it's this magical place, but like over the years, like, and like I say, it started with his first wife, leaving to go back to England. And that would have been in like, you know, the late seventies, right. Early Mm -hmm. eighties kind of thing. Right. So my mom comes on the scene later subsequently, but she, you know, like there's a couple of like my, I mean, total like firecracker, my mom, but she um, would have been like, there was this time where she went to the dry cleaners and it was like, she took my dad's suits to the dry cleaners and, you know, there was like, it was a tan suit and he'd spilt like something dark on it. And she said, you know, oh, there's, can you make it like, try and get that stain out that's on the lapel, kind of like very prominent stain. And so she went a couple of days later to pick up the dry cleaning and, you know, there's a whole schwack of dry cleaning and she, she specifically checked that tan suit and, you know, it looked like nothing had been done. And so she said, Oh, um, you know, by the way, this, the, the stain is still there, you know, and the person, it was a man basically just said, Oh, um, your white suit's not white enough for you, white lady. Oh, wow. And it was just like, you know, it was kind of like that. And it was just a very small thing, but it was like, you know, it was the sort of the culmination of, um, you know, and that was in Nairobi where, you know, we were kind of more 
um, established, but like, you know, they were just used to, um, you know, a whole like different sort of thing, you know? And like, do you think you got some of the spiciness from your mom? Do you think uh, that yeah, I'd say both you? of them. I would say, I would say both my parents, um, last story for last story. Okay. Um, <laughs> she was told by one of the people that there was this important guest at the airport that she needed to go and pick up. So she goes to the airport, picks up this important guest, and the important guest is Mother Teresa. Oh. And they're, they're oh like, only you, and like it was like the, they were like, the only person that can handle this is my mom. So my mom was young, and she wanted to set up a new orphanage. And they had like, I, my mom doesn't even remember how the, the dollar amounts, but they had a certain amount of money for the place, right? And so um, just my mom and Mother Teresa spend the whole afternoon driving around, looking at all the places that they have enough money for that they can afford. But none of them work, right? They're, they're all too small. They're not right. Not enough rooms. Don't work, don't work, don't work, right? Mm-hmm. So they're kind of like a little bit dejected and they're sort of, you know, so my mom is driving her home to wherever she was staying and um, it had, you know, that it had poured with rain and like a typical Africa tropical, like the rain clouds had gone and then there's a, usually a rainbow and there's this huge for sale sign out front of this massive like mansion of a house. And so she says, stop, 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 stop the car. We, I, I, I have to go up there to see that house on the hill. And my mom's like rolling her eyes, like poke me in the eyeball. Like I can tell you, we don't have enough money for this house, right? Like not even close. Mm-hmm. So, but she was like insistent. And um, so my mom drives up the driveway that, you know, to this house and um, you know, no appointment, nothing, right. Just like spontaneous. And the guard says, well, like, you know, who are you? And, looks in the car and my mom's like, well, you know, I have this guest and it's like, Mother Teresa. They're like, don't say no to her. (laughs) So in they go, there's there's staff or someone in there to let them in. So anyway, they get this tour of this huge house and sure enough, it checks all the boxes for Mother Teresa. She's like, yep, this is the house. Yeah. And so she basically tells them that they're going to take it. And my mom's like, what? What? Like, what? Like, I'm like, but like, and so she has to like, my mom has to be like the, 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 the voice of reason, the tough guy, you know, tough lady, right. To remind her that they like have X amount of money. It's not enough to pay for this house. Like, and she puts her hand on my mom's shoulder and she said, don't worry, my child, the Lord will provide. And my mom oh my was God. like, oh. <laughs> I might have to call bullshit on that. <laughs> like, might have to call bullshit. Like, because great, I'm all, and she's always very positive, but she's like, we need cash, like cold, hard cash, like tomorrow. Like, and so sure enough, a couple days later, like literally two days later, this huge check. And like I say, my mom doesn't even remember the amounts but it would have been like several hundred thousand dollars comes in and and often back then those bigger checks they're specifically earmarked for like building a well here um you know uh, doing a new school here building a library here like they it comes with a, a very specific details as to what that money's you know the sponsor donors wants that money to go to right this was carte blanche like 
do whatever you want. So they were, my mom had to like literally eat humble pie. I was like, oh, fuck me, Mother Teresa. You're going to get your mansion on the hill. <laughs> Holy cow. They got the house. Like, it was like, talk about, you know, the universe and like intention and like, yeah. And was the check signed the Lord? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I actually, my mom doesn't even remember who the money came from, but um, it was a huge amount of money. And it was right in the nick of time. And it was exactly fulfilled Mother Teresa's powerful wish of like, she knew after a whole afternoon of exhausting all the like small houses that just didn't work for her, right? And not many people know this, but she came from a very, very wealthy, um, powerful Lithuanian family. Like, so Mm. she came from a massively wealthy family and she just basically told them all, like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm doing the Lord's work. And she, you know, wow. didn't rely on her family's money. Um, and many people don't know that. They just kind of think she was just a, a nun, you know, that, um, mm-hmm. but she was a powerhouse. I mean, everyone knows she was a powerhouse, but um, yeah. That's crazy a cool times. Story. They're crazy times. I'm glad you told that one last story. <laughs> I was well, the best I'm, last. I'm yeah. glad because I have a, I have a question. Oh, like when you come to Canada after this, like first of all, very different context, right? I and you were maybe too young to be that impacted, but for your parents as a family life, it must have been a big adjustment, right? Like, um, oh. maybe you didn't have the staff in the house or uh, totally. less people. Well, totally new community you were so well established there now maybe you don't know many people what was that like yeah i would say that it was it was much harder for my dad because um you know he was this like very powerful person right and he came from like a you know influential family and like you know he just kind of so he wanted to move to australia because that was he loved the warmth and the sun and and for him that's where he really wanted to go but thankfully my mom is like powerhouse that she is and so she put her foot down and because back then she was taking us twice a year to ireland to visit her parents right so she was like fuck that like i am not moving to australia and twice a year flying from australia to dublin like it's like flying around the world so she Mm -hmm. she put her foot down she was like absolutely no to australia hard hard no and and they had actually um bought uh, an investment property here in victoria Mm -hmm. and my aunt had also moved to victoria because it had a kind of a british vibe so they had and my dad was smart and my mom was smart too. Like she, like, so she took him up to like Long Beach and like showed him like the magic of like Vancouver Island. And, yeah. and then, and it was, a lot of it was easy flights, right? Like it was easier to fly from here to London and Dublin, you know, because my dad at first was like, oh my God, like we were going to have to basically dig ourselves out of snow for six months of the year. Like, so it was kind of like this, like, I'm not going to at all live in the middle or the east of Canada, like hard, hard no. So Mm -hmm. the only place was either Vancouver or Victoria. And because they bought this investment property here a few years prior, they were just like, well, let's try it, you know? So it was kind of like uh, around that time where like my dad was like basically retired. And then it was like, and my mom didn't really have, they they didn't know anybody here, right? So it was like they had to sort of really get established, right? And so... 
and my dad ended up being more the stay-at-home parent. So it was mm -hmm. totally like a, a reversal. Wow. And we had a cleaning lady, uh, Rita. She was so nice, super nice. She would come once a week to clean our house. And, and a lot of people would be like, oh, it must be nice to have a cleaning lady come once a week, right? And I talk about like the parent, the, the different realities, right? Um, both my parents were like, "Oh, I wish she came seven days a week, like once a week." <laughs> like, she lived we're here. like, we're like slumming it here in Victoria, like <laughs> once a week cleaner. Like, we're like, we don't have no cook, and like we have to make our own meals, and we have to go buy our own groceries, like. So Holy. it was definitely an adjustment, but so my dad, it was kind of like it would have been funny, like you only know the things looking back in hindsight, but like he'd be like at the soccer pitch or whatever. And he'd be like chatting to the other moms to be like, so when you're making like roast potatoes, like how do you do yours? <laughs> like oh, what? <laughs> so it would have been like, cause that would have been like in the, you know, like early eighties. Right. Um, mm -hmm. When it was like, <laughs> and did he like it? Did he lean into it? He did. Yeah. He became, so having never cooked a day in his entire life, like his, they, he had staff and servants his entire life. Like, so then coming to Canada, I'm like, he, he was in, would have been in England and my brother's wife is a really good cook and she had a bunch of Delia Smith cookbooks. So he was like, Oh, oh I better to get some of those Delia Smith cookbooks. Right. So that was his kind of like, holy grail was like and because he would follow a delia smith recipe and it would come out like nine out of ten times like hit it out of the park wow. and so then it was kind of like oh there's nothing to this right you know like and actually they taught us to cook like so like we were all grateful because as we grew up you know my dad would basically like he was a golfer right so he was golfing and tennis and he's like you know my mom was working and so one day a week we would um it would be like our night to cook, right? Like it would like, we'd have to pick what we were going to make. And then he'd, you know, get all the groceries and um, all three of us, myself and my two younger brothers are, are you know, really good cooks now wow. because they taught us, right? And the bakery, does that exist still? Or it's... The it's bakery still exists. Yeah. Um, our oh, family yeah. sold it quite a while ago. So we're not, it's not in our um, holding or anything anymore, but... That's very cool. I'm excited to go to Kenya and find the bakery and go and be like, I know yeah. the owners of this place. So you grew up basically from seven on, you grew up in Victoria. Yeah. Uh, fast forward a tiny bit to Ryan Bicknell, the realtor. How did that start? Oh. How did you get into real estate? Um, okay, that's a real fast forward there. Whew. <laughs> well, we can go through it all. How much time? I do you feel have? like it's like one of those annoying TikTok videos that the thing that's going around right now, like my whole year in like twenty seconds, and like yeah. like like, like a hundred <laughs> photos, and it's like, <laughs> and I'm just like, I can't even. I don't even. It gives me a headache. I'm just like, oh stop, oh stop. I'm just like, no, no, I hate it. I'm like, <laughs> um, okay, well, we obviously skipped something that you really wanted to share. No, so, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. You're sixteen. Um, you're headed yeah. to. School, I got beat up on the school field. No, I'm kidding. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, realtor. Okay. Yeah, that's a cool story, actually. Actually, um, I'm gonna stop you. Sorry. Oh. How? Oh. What was school like? What was like junior high and high school like for you oh, after um, you had been 
again to more to Angela's question, like the lifestyle changed significantly, right? Did you notice yeah. that or were you young enough that it didn't really it wasn't so much of an impact to you? Yeah, I don't think it was. Like I don't actually have any memories of me feeling like I'm missing out or anything. Mm. Like um what it what what like subjects were you interested in? Did you I I guess it's like one of the f interesting things to me is like the the things you can be when you grow up that you think of as a kid are not usually the things most people are. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. for example, as a real estate agent, I I imagine like most kids, you were not thinking that as one of the options that you might become, or maybe you were. So like, no. how, what was that path like? Oh yeah, no, 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 totally. And so, yeah, never, never did I ever think I'd be a realtor. So uh, when I went to school, like after school, I remember kind of, you know, it was, I remember like the feeling of freedom and like we went uh, backpacking around Europe, right? Like, and it was like after high school, it was like pivotal point in time, right? Of like leaving and like going with your friends and like backpacking around Europe. And like, that, I remember that just being like such a phenomenal trip. And, and I had no idea what I wanted to do at school, but it was like, my parents were very much like, like not going to college or university is not an option, like not an option. Yeah. So, and I remember they set up this dinner with a really good family friend who was very into education. And they basically suggested doing a, starting out with a very general, like general arts program. Like, so it's like, you know, you kind of dabble in a whole bunch of things. Right. And I remember really loving that. Like I used to love like philosophy and like history and like, I always did not like math, never liked math. That's for sure. I had friends that were a little bit older that had like philosophy degrees and they were graduated and they were like, you know, working in the restaurant or like pumping gas or whatever. And it was like, I was like, oh, well, that didn't seem to work out so great for you. And so then that was the point where it was like a pivot to the commerce degree. So I did a, a business commerce degree specialized in, specialized in international business through UVic. It was great. Uh, we did an exchange to South Korea. Oh my God, that was so amazing. Like, wow. like absolutely amazing. And shortly after that, um, a really good family friend is a developer. And we were having lunch in Chinatown. And David Butterfield, he kind of was like my second dad, really, right? And um, so anyway, he had one son, Stuart. And Stuart has turned out to be an annoyingly, massively successful billionaire. <laughs> so he went to school at SMU. There's two schools here, Saint, private schools, St. Michael's and Glen Lyon. And there's always this rivalry between them. We went to Glen Lyon and Stuart went to SMU. All, a bunch of my cousins have gone to SMU. And anyway, you know Slack? You know Slack? Yeah. The, mm -hmm. that Stuart Butterfield is the main creator of Slack. Oh, interesting. <laughs> He is like yeah, a multi-billionaire and I just bumped into his mom, Norma. So David passed away a while ago, which was really sad and it's kind of still doesn't feel like he's gone, but he is gone. Um, anyway, so literally two days ago, I think it was on Friday, it's either Friday or Thursday. Um, I'm in Cook Street Village, just like down the street from our house, right? And there's this fantastic little cafe and it makes the best Jewish. So Norma, Stuart's mom, David's wife is Jewish. And it makes the best chicken authentic soup, 
when you can't don't have time to make it yourself. So I'm there like eating mine and like in walks Norma to get hers. And I'm like, hey Norma. And she's like, ah Ryan, ah <laughs> like, I'm like, comes over and like she's like, are you like uh, can I sit and join you? And I was just by myself, right? And so I'm like, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. So anyway, so we sat and I was like, well, how was your Christmas? And she's like, oh, it was so good. Stuart rented this massive yacht in the Caribbean <laughs> and we cruised all through the Caribbean. Oh, it was so great. I was just like, oh my God, like, out of God. I was like, oh, of course, Norma. I'm like, where did you fly out? Where did you get on the boat? And she goes, Antigua. Oh, so nice. <laughs> and what, what were you feeling when she said that? Like, what were your thoughts? Oh, I was, a part of me was like, oh, that's so great. Like, but also the other part of me was like, fuck, I wish I was on the boat too, right? Like, we were in Edmonton for Christmas, you know? <laughs> It was definitely not Antigua, and it was Almost definitely not a same. massive yacht. Yeah, well, you had West Ed, West Edmonton Mall. They true. didn't have West Edmonton Mall. True, 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 true. Mm. The water park, anyway, they didn't have the water slide. They didn't have the water slide. <laughs> anyway, so David always wanted to build a sustainable resort town that was he tried and tried and tried and it didn't really work and so eventually he can i ask because i even before we started i had this question what is a sustainable resort town oh yeah okay okay it's this really cool magical place um in mexico so he did it in so he wanted to do it up on the malahat but the ndp government was in power and they were just like very opposed to it and it was like it was like he gave up he was just like no 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 and then he tried to do it in arizona and it sort of worked a little bit but not 100 to how we wanted it so he was able to do it in baja mexico in loretto it's this tiny little fishing town of like 12 to probably fourteen thousand people and it's on the inside like the sea cortez side of the baja and it's basically like, yeah, no cars, pedestrian oriented, narrow, narrow streets, like um, European style, like squares for people to gather so that like they can talk. And like, he just wanted to create this like magical town that like was the best, like to encourage the best of all of us, like the best of being like neighbors and humans and like, you know, like not just like, you know, being in your like Phoenix style, like we're to cross the street, it's actually easier to do it in your car than it is to walk across the street. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Phoenix is like so spread out and it's like, you can't survive in Phoenix if you don't have a car. So we started that in 2003 and back then, uh, they had stopped commercial flights. So there's no commercial flights into Loretto. Uh, even though Fauna tour, the Mexican like development uh, tourism agency that's done like Cabo and, you know, Puerto Vallarta, like the Loretto was their fifth thought. So the, the Fauna tour F O N T A U R dumped in all this money back in the eighties to put in the, um, sewage, the water, the, um, electricity, they built this like amazing John McEnroe tennis facility and um, John McEnroe like was designed it. And, like it was like, they built the golf course, 18 hole golf course. It's right on the ocean. Jacques Cousteau called it the world's aquarium. So it's like this wow. protected, the great blue whale come there. My parents have met Jacques Cousteau. I was talking, it was like, I'm talking about like, I was like t- back in 2003, 2004, I was like, Jacques Cousteau. My mom's like, oh, we had dinner with him. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, what? I was like, 
<laughs> she like went into this whole story about Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> like, wow. Oh my God. Anyway, Loretto is this magical place. So I was 25 and David said that I could sell anything to anybody. That was what his all, he always said that. And I was one of the top salespeople. Back then, all we had, picture this, there was two hotels, one on either side of this huge cove. Um, and then there's the golf course, there was the John Macarino tennis facility, and then all in between was sand, like just sand. And so we had these amazing architects that did these amazing renderings. So we had chalk lines in the sand, right? And each um, plot was numbered like one to 75 or whatever, right? And there was the bigger ones on the beach, the oceanfront custom homes, and then there's the smaller ones back from the beach. And we basically had these flying by trips. And in the early days, because there was no commercial flights, um, David had to charter a flight. So we had to fill up the plane with like as good a prospects as possible, right? Like we didn't want to bring down like tire kickers that were just going to waste everybody's time. And so we really, in between those trips, the flying by four or five day trips to Mexico, we were on the road, like up to Alaska, over to Portland, down to Seattle, Edmonton, Calgary, Toronto. Like we were recruiting people to tell people how great this cool community is to get on the plane, right? And come down. Um, wow. Yeah, I'll never forget. Like I had these amazing Calgary clients and they were they were very wealthy and they uh, we were like on the beach and like the, you know, it's windy and it's like, you know, um, and we have like the, we're trying to like keep the plans down from like blowing away. And they're like, okay, okay, we'll, we'll basically like, we'll take lot number three, right? It was like 1.8 million or something. And, mm-hmm. but it was a huge leap of faith on their part. Cause like I say, it was, it was sand. Like there was, there was nothing there other yeah. than like our nice architectural roll-ups. Like we were selling the dream, right? Yeah. And he um, was like, okay, okay, we'll do it. And then the wife looks at me and she's like, Ryan, you want us to spend 1.8 million U.S.? on this piece of sand in Loretto, Mexico. And I can't even fucking fly here. And I'm like, yeah, Sally, Ah, wouldn't it be great? (laughs) Can't you just imagine? (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to know what you said to that. (laughs) I did, I basically probably did something quite similar to that. I'm like, oh, Sally, like I hear what you're saying. Yes, it is a big leap of faith, but you know, we have like the best of the best team here. Let's go talk to the architect and like, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, like I never push or sell anything. I like enroll people. Um, and those flying by trips were actually really good because, you know, we would go into town for dinners and then we come back and there'd be these big round table meetings with architects at the hotel. And so the architects would like answer people's questions, right? Like, and be like, okay, like, well, where am I going to park my car? Like if I can't park it in my garage, like, yeah. and then it's like, well, there's going to be a separate facility that like the vehicles can park and your golf cart will fit in your house. But yeah, you, you won't be able to park your, your Jeep Cherokee in your house. Like, you know, yeah. and it's like, well, how does that look? Right. And then, you know, and David was like a master enroller. Like he, I learned from like the best, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, and he always said that like, Oh my God, you'll love this. Okay, one last, one other little gem. This was actually a pivotal, uh, amazing time. He was very big on Landmark. Did you guys ever do Landmark? The You know, that education 
series is called Landmark. Anyway, it's a whole thing. He was down in Phoenix and he had his assistant, you know, basically say that I needed to be at um, this hotel on March the sort of 10th at 7 p.m., right? And I usually back then was quite, I would often be late because like, I like I was taught that the cool people show up late, you know, like, no, I'm kidding. Okay. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So he was like, this is one thing you cannot be late for. Cause like, basically that's one of the pivotal things of landmark is like being late is, a, is rude to your host. It's rude to your whoever, right. Disrespects their time. Right. So they close the door. So if you're late, the door is closed and locked. Mm-hmm. Like, so anyway, so he, I go and I all day long, I was like sweating and I was like, Oh my God, I got to be there at seven o'clock. Like all day. I was like, Oh, it's seven o'clock. So his assistant gives me this envelope, which I'm not allowed to open the envelope I'm to give to the host. Right. So I get there and there, the, the people checking in are kind of like, I'm not really impressed with them or whatever. Right. And I'm like, and they're like, well, who, who invited you here tonight? I'm like, Oh, David Butterfield. And they were just like, Oh, what? I'm like, they like slept up and like, it was like a whole thing. Right. And um, so anyway, the envelope gets given to the host and in front of this room full of like 150 people, I'm at the back, right? Because I'm just like, uh oh, like, I'm just like, this is out of my comfort zone. I'm just like, I'm going to sit in the back row by the door so I can just sneak out when I need to. And all of a sudden I see this envelope going up and these people are talking about these like amazing, like earth shattering moments in their lives of like, I was an alcoholic and I lost my family and I did this uh, work and I mm, stopped drinking. And now I have a relationship again with my wife and my kids mm. and people are crying. And I'm just like, my, uh, I don't know. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not going to have to talk. I'm not going to have to talk. Like I'm just going to sneak out the back door. And then all of a sudden Bernie, I'll never forget. This was like 25 years ago. He opens the envelope and I'm just like, ah! Oh my God, like, what's it say in that envelope? I was like, and he said, um, it was a letter from David, and it's like, hi, folks. So sorry I can't make tonight. Uh, we're down in um, the desert, missing everybody. Um, uh, please welcome Ryan. I have him working for me um, while I teach him about the importance of money, while he teaches me the importance of kindness. And the whole room stood up and like clapped and they somehow they knew who I was. They turned, the whole room turned and looked at me and I was just like, ah! I'm like, thank you. I'm like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I was just like, my heart was like, I'm like, I am not getting up on that stage. Like, I'm not getting up on that stage. Did you have to get up? Did he say something? No, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, but they, 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 right after that, that the you the new people get broken down into the the, the smaller meet rooms where you have the instructors who they're like this is what landmarks all about like you should sign up you should sign up like you know yeah. don't you want to change your life and they're they're quite like intense and pressury and you know it's like I'm just like oh no I'm not into that so mm-hmm. yeah I stood up and I I went to go out. Um, and the guy stood in the door and he's like, well, why are you leaving? Like, that's not a, you're not standing in a position of power. Are you, if you're leaving now? And I was just like, oh my God, let me out that door. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So eventually like, I don't, I don't like that hard sell. I really don't. 
never have, never will. So eventually I did do it, right? Like, cause I called David and I talked to him and he was like, so what did you think? You know, like he stayed up late just to, cause he knew I was going to call him. Yeah. Uh, he, even though we didn't plan on it, he just knew I was going to call him. Right. And it was like $1,200. And I'm just like, ah, I don't feel like spending $1,200 on this. Like, no thanks. Yeah. So I'm like, if you, so it was funny cause I was enrolling him I was like, if you pay for the course, I'll do it. He's like, no, no, Ryan. No, no. Like, you got to pay for it. You got to have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. And I was like, bah, bah. well, I guess I'm not going to play this game then, right? And he's like, oh, no, no, Ryan. No, no, no. <laughs> wow. We agreed on 50-50. We kind mm-hmm. of like enrolled each other. <laughs> so we paid, I paid half, he paid half. And I did it. And it was actually, and we still use uh, some of it to this day, actually. Um, yeah. Very interesting. I have uh, lots of questions about, (laughs) about this. So, um, you know, when you said like math was never for you, like when you have like that kind of like feeling I, in my world and me included, a lot of people are like sales is never for me. Sales is like the same kind of gut reaction of like, please no, don't, don't put me in that zone. Um, so uh, my questions are basically like, how do you approach sales? Because it's interesting to say like, you know, you also could be uncomfortable in these sales situations where people are trying to sell you, but this is what you do. So how, how do you see it? How, how does the process uh, work for you? I have always been like, <clears throat> I'm an enroller, right? Like I kind of like, I get people excited because I'm excited. Like, mm-hmm. so, um, and that's why like Loretto Bay was like, at first it was like, it was a big like hurdle to overcome because like I'd never sold anything in Mexico. Right. Like it's like, it was all new and like, you know, foreign ownership in Mexico is very different. Like it's all through a bank trust, a fideicomiso. And so like, and you have to have title insurance and like, so there's like, it was a steep, steep learning curve for us. Mm -hmm. Um, But like what the, the first time I flew down there, Oh, and you'll love this. The first time I, I didn't even go on the, on the, the, the reconnaissance trip because we were in Europe and it was right after the terrorist attacks and, um, yeah, that's right. And so I missed the first trip. So I had to rely on my friends who went, who took photos and videos and I was, and they were excited, but you know how it's not the same, like when you're there on the ground. So yeah. the very first time I was kind of faking it a bit, right? Cause I was like, Oh, look at this oh great 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 right like oh great 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 which is not authentic to me like i i'm that's not how i ever like to do things but it's just purely because i was in europe and i couldn't have made the trip and so but that first flight when i was like i was there was definitely trepidation because i'd never been there yet right so when we flew down it was flaunt and the, 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 the pilot, because it was a charter, that he did a whole swoop of the whole area. And I remember looking out the window and I remember that feeling of like that like deep, deep, like in your soul feeling of like, oh my God, this place is amazing. Like just from the sky. And then when we landed, they call it um, the place where the mountains come to swim. And there's these phenomenal mountains like like uh, rocky style mountains um that basically disappear into the ocean 
Like, it's just like huh. this very special place. And I was just like, it just thought, oh, I'm getting shivers right now just thinking about it. Me too. Wow. <laughs> Me too. So like the moment, like it was, so that, that trip, it was like flying over the land and it was like, and it's like very r- unusual because it, it feels very like Palm Springs and like Arizona desert, but it's on the edge of the ocean. So it's very unique. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when they, the door and the, 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 the airport is a very small, like uh, Palapa style airport, like with one luggage carousel and you, there's no, there's no um, jetway or there's no like so when they open the door of the plane the warm air comes in and it's like you're outside so you go down the stairs outside you know what i mean and so you see the mountains and like you feel the sea and the airport is right on the ocean like it's like literally like you can walk you could run to the end of the runway and go swimming in the ocean like so it's just this like magical place so i was just like i'm like okay i can sell this (laughs) (laughs) wow so yeah, so I, I can never sell anything. Like I never f- put on, like I never think of it like I'm selling someone something. I'm like enrolling them and like I'm I'm imparting this information with them. And I'm like their advisor that has the information and I answer their questions and I listen to them. Like even though I'm doing a lot of talking today, I actually do, when I'm in sales mode, I listen way more than I talk. Because I feel like that's like the number one thing, like, you know, because lots of salespeople, they talk themselves in and out of a sale. And I've seen it. I'm just like, shut your mouth, shut your mouth, stop talking, don't talk anymore. Because like <laughs> the person's like ready to sign and then they're just like, blah, 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 blah. And then the person like literally puts down the pen and be like, oh, oh, oh okay. Okay. <laughs> Can, and I have to ask because you put it out there. Can you tell us about the importance of money and the importance of kindness? Oh yeah, absolutely. I really want to somehow do. Um, I want to with Darcy and like maybe even you guys. Like um, I said, I sent him a note the other day that I want to make the world a better place with him, and I really want to do that. And. Um, like I've been really fortunate because like I've had like amazing parents and we have amazing family and like we are very kind people and I know you guys are too. Uh, I really, really, you know, it's it's really hammered home to me all, all through COVID and you know I know that the world is a very unsettled place right now and there's so much uncertainty and you know when people are pushed into those, you know, to their breaking point, basically, um, people do things that are not kind and, and they do things that are, you know, not characteristic because, you know, they're, they're stressed out. Like they, they might not be able to afford the groceries at the grocery store now because the price is so high or they have to think about like, you know, am I going to fill up my car with this very expensive gas or should I put my kids on the bus? You know, and it's kind of like, you know, and you see it all around, like it's like people in the airport and on the plane and, um, you know, on the road, like people get like simple things cause people to go into like a road rage. Right. And I'm like, and it's just like, I know I'm very aware that like, because of the unsettled nature of what's happening in our, our shared world with, you know, the stock market, like, it's like, we all have to deal with the same stock market. It's not like, you know, we all have to deal with the same 
realities of you know what's happening in ukraine and like you know these deeply disturbing things that i just really want to you know drill down and like tap into um that the world in my opinion is going to be much better if people are just more reasonable and more kind you know and and it's so that's really important to me and what does kindness look like to you Lots of different things, like random acts of kindness, like this, you know, lovely lady in our building, she lost her husband this year and she donated uh, her beautiful Christmas tree to the building. And I'm on the strata. Somehow I'm the VP for Christ's sakes. I don't, that is, I don't even <laughs> want to be the VP, but I am. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, she's just the sweetest lady. And uh, so just before Christmas, I was like running around and I was like getting some plants at my favorite florist. And I was like, just came to me. I was just like, oh, I want to buy Anne, um, a really nice orchid planter as a thank you. Right. And so mm. I, I did. Right. I didn't tell anybody like the board, which is bad on my part, too. Like I just like I'm just like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, get one of those, one of those, one of those. <laughs> So anyway, I um I got her um a, a planter and she loves white. I knew I knew I know she loves all white. And so anyway, so I got her a white planter and I got I um I have these Christmas cards. I don't know if you can see that. It's just like tangle ball Christmas lights, you know? Oh yeah. And it says, it's fine, this is fine. Um <laughs> and then it says, at least they work. Hope you have a tangle free holiday. Merry Christmas. So I, I just love. wrote her a cute little thank you card and I hand delivered the planter to her and she was just like I was like standing at her door. She opened her door and she just started crying. Like I was just like, I was like, well, hi, Anne, Merry Christmas. I just wanted to, you know, this is from, um, you know, us. And she goes, well, I know it's from you. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I mean, <laughs> from all of us here at the building. And um, I just want, you know, thank you so much. And your joy, your Christmas tree has brought so many people joy this Christmas. And, and so we have two trees, but I was like, I'm kind of in charge of the lobby decorations. And uh, so I was like, nope, we're only doing the one tree. And Anne's tree is going in that corner. It's brought people so much joy, her tree, right, this Christmas. And it, it was so important for me, for her to have her tree up. Because this is the first Christmas without her husband. And she loves that tree. And so anyway, it was just it was so nice. It's like full circle, you know what I mean? Yeah, I love it. I see you have a... A really good ability to connect with people deeply, like yeah. pretty quickly. And yeah. just to know things like her favorite color is white. She's going to love this specific orchid. Uh, I'm sure the board, you didn't get any questions from it because they all trust you to make amazing decisions. Oh, like, they do. They're really, everyone's always like, what Ryan wants, Ryan gets. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. It's It's your mom, I think, coming out. Yeah, yeah. You guys probably read this, but um, this has been very special all through the holidays. The that the magic word, you know, the Earl Nightingale piece. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I had uh, I gave it all to everybody's their Christmas gifts, and oh, cool. um, so um, there's so much power in that that one section that that eight pages. You know that like. I think is such a great foundation for everybody to, you know, build on and, and really tap into. For those who don't know the magic word written by Earl Nightingale, is, the word is attitude, right? Yeah. 
And the attitude is so important because it's like a mirror. So it's like, just re-emphasizes the importance of like how from the moment we wake up, like our attitude sets the stage for everything throughout the day. Right. And, and Fran is the president of our strata and she's this super cute Jewish lady, little spitfire. And I was kind of like earlier, I was like, ah, I don't need to be vice president. I've got a lot on my plate. I'm just like, and she's like, well, right. If you're not going to be vice president, I'm quitting. And that's going to be a problem for the whole building. (laughs) So I'm like, (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. 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 Fran. So she like fully enrolled me and she taught me, Funnily enough, she taught me this week how to make authentic Jewish chicken noodle soup from scratch. So like I brought wine up and we had this great visit. She was in Maui all of December. It was our first time to visit this week since like all all of December. So the two of us had this great New Year's visit, drinking champagne in her kitchen. And she showed me how to make authentic chicken soup. It was the best. That kind of like... When we started this, I expressed how I saw you getting squeezing the juice out of every every life experience. That's a good example that you just you have you always have enough time to do these things with these people, and you just yeah pop upstairs and make soup with with somebody. Yeah, it's very cool to see. Speaking of having enough time, I think it's going to connect to to the other half of the question, which is kind of what did what did David teach you about the importance of money or what have you learned about the importance of money? Yeah, just that, like, I mean, it is important, you know what I mean, in terms of like there's um, a certain level of, you know, I've never believed that money buys you happiness, but I I know that a certain amount of money allows you to do things that bring happiness and joy, you know? So I, yeah. And I guess everybody views it differently. And I mean, I think a lot of our thoughts about money come from our childhood, like in how we were raised. And I feel very fortunate, very grateful. Like I'm very grateful for how I was raised and my family. And, and I know that you know, none of us can choose our family. Um, you know, like we can all choose our friends. And I was, for some, whatever reason, I know this is not related, but to me, um, it kind of ties in a bit. Uh, like I've been having this vision for a while that like I kind of want to be like Oprah, you know what I mean? Like I, I want to bring people together. I want to help people live their best lives. And, you know, like all my life, people have all different are the other incredibly amazing thing i'm so grateful for our parents my parents is they always taught us to be kind to everybody right like we were never taught that like you know you're better than a janitor or you're better than anybody right like it's mm-hmm. just different people have different lives and different paths and um that was a really powerful lesson which i'm very grateful for that i very important to me to this day and every day of my life is and I think that's what allows me to connect with like I can connect with a lot of people like a lot of different people you know we can also be tough too right like I I'm very like if someone's being like a jerk or an asshole or being like nasty to someone like I will go out of my way like I can write some very frank very like the other day someone pissed me off and I wrote one of my Darcy calls them like one of my like emails and I was like I was like ah! number one number two number three number four number and i went like i do lists and i got all the way to number 10 
And I'm when I write emails like that, I'm I get up early and I set my intention and I was very precise. So we can be tough when we need to be, but it's not I don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy when I have to be the tough guy like that. But I also have standards and and um, if someone behaves poorly from in my opinion, um, I will let them know. It's very cool to see all these sides of you. Like, <laughs> we did a complete 360 on you today in the last hour and 45 minutes. You've been doing real estate for 22 years now. Did I yeah, 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 yeah. I would say, yeah, since like 2020, 1999-ish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how do you keep things interesting? What's, uh, what do you? Well, I don't have a resume. So the, and, and typically we do a lot of work with like condo high rises. And so developers are our clients. And so like the Vancouver developers know who I am. And so I, they always phone me, you know, like, so, which is a privilege. I mean, it's, that's a great, great thing. So yeah, I always like to, you know, just be me, you know what I mean? Like, and, and um, some people can handle my level of like me and other people can't and like so um but usually like i can work with almost anybody and so um that's usually why they want me on the team because like like and i get brought on at all kinds of different levels like sometimes i get brought on right from the very beginning and we do a lot of like prep planning and prep and stuff before the launch other times i get brought on mid-launch or like if their launch has faltered and the developer calls me to like come in and like be me right like and I like get people excited and I like you know just sort of like being me kind of like I say some people can handle it some people can't but those are often the the more challenging but more fun ones where because it's it's kind of like a bit awkward like because I wasn't involved and I'm being brought on to kind of like clean up a, a mess from an unsuccessful launch. So like I have to, you know, be very conscientious of like, not like making them feel bad, right? The, the current team, like I'm, so I have to come on and kind of like get them all pumped up and like, we're, we're going to do a relaunch and like, it's going to be new and different and, you know, and I get them all excited and I, I hate bios and I hate like talking about myself, <laughs> but Usually a launch that I'm on is like the most successful. So mm-hmm. like when we like look back at the numbers, it's kind of like, and the developers know this, right? They're just like, oh, that was the one Ryan was on. That was the one Ryan was not on. Oh, that was the one Ryan did. Oh, that was the one Ryan did. Mm-hmm. So because, you know, it's hard work, right? And, and it's intense. And like I say, when we hit the gas, we really hit the gas. So like everybody has to work together and, you know, do their part. And if there's problems, we need to deal with them right away. And I could see that you'd be a really uh, motivating energy in a team, like to be be directing. (laughs) Some people are like, Oh God, here comes Ryan. (laughs) That is actually one of my questions is how do you inspire people? Like say there's somebody not really pulling their weight what's your process to inspiring or motivating somebody to do great work? Yeah. Usually I kind of just talk to them. Like I find that usually there's something in that 
instance that's behind the scenes of, mm. of it. And I, and like, this has happened to me my whole life. People just like tell me their whole story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so usually in an instance like that, it's like they've got a sick child at home and their, their mind is on their sick child, or they had a fight with their um, spouse or, you know, there's like, something's not going well in their home life. You know what I mean? Like usually that's what it is like, or their, their attitude needs to be shifted. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. another thing about that's So great about the magic word, but yeah, that's usually what I do. I, I usually, there's usually something behind. So I, I drill down on that, but not in an aggressive way, like in a, in a, my way. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, so then I'm like, okay, well, do you want to take like tomorrow off and like go deal with that thing that you need to deal with at home? And then, and then like, they're like, oh my God, is that, I can do that? I'm like, well, it's not really ideal, but like, I'd rather you come back and like you're hit the gas with all of us full t- tilt. So how about we do that? You go home, the team will cover for you tomorrow or today and you come home you come back like sort it out right and they're like and like just that simple act of kindness right they're like okay you listen to my like obviously my i'm not performing well which affects the whole team and we can't have that and so sometimes it's like if it's a real problem like like it's gonna take weeks then it's like sorry Susie or jim like you got to go deal with that and we'll help you, but you got to go, like, we got to swap you out. Like, so sometimes we have to swap someone in, you know, which isn't ideal, but you know, like at the end of the day, these developers, as you know, they spend millions and millions of dollars and it's like the show must go on. Right. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, we can't, after all the advertising campaigns are done, like, it's like, they're done. Like we got to, and, and it's also like, there's when, when you do what we do, you kind of have to come out of the gate firing on all cylinders. Cause it's very tricky to like do a second launch. And that's kind of like, and then it's kind of like, well, I guess you're doing a second launch because the first launch didn't go so well. Like it's kind of like, you know, it's human psychology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, everybody knows that we got to, we have one main crack at it, pummel all the funds and energy towards that and try and make it the most successful possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we try and do. And I'm, I'm guessing most of the time, just those people being able to be heard and understood and validated is enough to change their attitude. Even totally. if you don't give them the day off, just hearing them out and saying, what's going on? Like, is there something I can help with? Totally. Even just knowing that there's someone on their side and their team that is looking out for them. Yeah. I'm sure that does a, makes a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just that human kindness, right? Of like, it's like human nature, right? Of like, you know, there's a problem. Okay. Tell me what the problem is. Like, let's try and figure it out. Right. So like we can never all move forward. Right. I have a rapid fire. Okay. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's, it's just uh, this is gonna be like the quick <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. version of your life <laughs> no no uh i was wondering on your off time so when you're not in these launch focus modes what do you look forward to the most i love like beach walks i love to be golfing out on the water like kind of outside stuff uh who is like a random person that you know that like people good wouldn't question. expect you to know <laughs> Oof, that's a good question 
Um, I feel like it'll be tough to pick one <laughs> based on what we've heard so far. Okay, I'll answer. BJ Cook, who's a really dear pal of mine, um, she is um, this super feisty firecracker. Uh, and she's David Foster's first wife. So, you know, the music composer, she lives here in Victoria. And um, so, yeah, he's on wife number five now, right? Um, he was married to um, the um, Thompson mom, who's the mom of the Jenner kids, Brody Jenner, and was married to Caitlyn Jenner, or Bruce Jenner. Yolanda Hadid he was wife number three, I think. She's mom of Gigi Hadid and Bella Hadid, you know, the models. Um, and now he's married to Catherine McPhee, who's really good pals with um, uh, Meghan Markle. Um, so, you know, when Harry and Meghan were here in Vancouver, in Victoria, right. a couple of years ago, like to escape, like it was like when the shit was hitting the fan, they stayed at this huge mansion on the ocean in Victoria by the ferries. And it was like this huge thing of like, oh my God, like, cause it like spread through Victoria of like, there was, and like the paparazzi were in boats, like trying to get shots, like through the, the windows. And they did a whole bunch of hikes and like all through these hikes that we love to go on ourselves. So, and we were actually all in Mexico and it was like, oh my God, look at this photo of like um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. They're hiking through Hoth Trail. My mom's like, oh my God, that's one of my trails. That's what, oh my God. Right? Like, it's like, so it's just like this whole thing. So that's been kind of on my mind recently because of our British roots and like, you know, like we all have. British and Irish passports as well as our Canadian passports. So, and we're monarchy fans. Like I love the crown and, you know, when princess Diana died, it was really sad. And, uh, and it's really kind of unfortunate how everything's happening right now with Harry and, and the drama with his brother and stuff. Right. Um, so anyway, I was out for dinner with, uh, um, BJ the other day and she knows about this whole Oprah thing. Right. And, Harry and Megan lived down the street with from Oprah, right? And she was chatting to David and she's like, What you want me to ask him if you can go down there and have lunch with Harry and Megan? See if Oprah's there? <laughs> I'm like, I was like, oh like she's like half joking, but it's also like within the realm of possibility, right? So I've been like the other night I had this dream of like uh I was down there and uh we all had lunch together, right? And the um back garden and you know it was like <laughs> so yeah, where she does her interviews this oh, is so strange like i think this is meant to happen right because literally i i promise you the first question that came to mind to me for rapid fire was what do you think of harry and megan and why that question came to me i had no idea i was like he probably has no opinion on harry and megan why would i ask that <laughs> And somehow we landed there. I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, I love that. I, I love my mind that. is blown right now. <laughs> I love, love that. That's well, my brother's wife Crazy. used to work out at the same gym as her, um, as Princess Diana. So they would often be on the treadmill at the same time, and they were both moms, right? Like my um, brother and his wife, they had two girls, and you know, so they were both like moms and. Uh, they now they're members of this really fancy club in London. The, it's called the Hurlingham Club, and uh, all the royal family are members there too. Like basically, the only way you get in is if someone dies. Like it's like very hard to get into the club. And um, my cousin was there the other day. My niece, I mean, was there the other day. She has a big crush on Eddie Redmayne. 
you know, the actor with like the big cheekbones. And uh, she was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Eddie Redmayne's having supper two tables away from us. Oh my God. Uh, she like couldn't even eat her supper. And her husband, Tom's a lawyer. And she's like, he was like messaging me to be like, Ryan, please tell her to put her phone down and eat her supper. Like she's like, she won't eat her supper. Cause all she's just like, just can't stop looking over at Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> oh my God. Did she go say hi to him? Uh, no, she didn't. She didn't. She was like, she did. She's also very like, she doesn't like to make a scene. You know what I mean? Like, so, um, yeah, she didn't, which, you know, she's very British. They're very, like, proper, like, etiquette British, you know? Yeah, Don't make a scene. That. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay, my last question is, what would you tell our listeners? If you could say one thing to our listeners, what would that be? Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. And um, just the incredible importance of being kind to everybody throughout your day and just know that they're dealing with stuff that you don't know about and uh, how your kindness can, you know, make or break their entire day, their entire week, their entire month, um, perhaps even their entire year. So random acts of kindness, you know, just the power of being kind to everybody that you come in path with. You are a pleasure to interview, Ryan. I really loved listening to all your stories. I could just sit here for hours and listen to you talk about all the experiences you've had in your life. And I do mean it's it's inspiring to see you enjoy life, just to see you experience these things because you really do get the most out of everything. And you bring out, I think from what I've seen, you've brought out a lot of great things in other people too. So it was a pleasure to have you on here. I I love that you said yes. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Great to meet you, Ryan. Thank you.